Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Hello and welcome everyone to this next ACE podcast. I am delighted to have two special guests with me today. My name is Vin Tank Preacher. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Endocrine Practice, and we have an exciting uh, episode today to discuss a brand new ACE clinical practice guideline on diabetes that was just published in Endocrine Practice in October 2022, and we have two of the authors with us today who are going to discuss this very important guideline. First, we have Dr. Susan Samson. Well, maybe you can start with Dr. Samson. Can you introduce yourself and let us know about what you do? And we'll talk about the guidelines next, but maybe introduce yourself to the audience. Well, thank you, Dr. Tampricha. I'm Sue Samson. I practice out of Mayo Clinic in Florida in Jacksonville where I'm the chief of endocrinology there. And I've also have been a member of ACE since 2003 and a member of the board of directors since 2016. So I was really excited to be part of this task force that was involved in updating this guideline for the 2022 diabetes. Great. Thank you again for joining us. And next we have a very special guest, Dr. Sethu Reddy. He's our sitting ACE president and also a co-author of the guidelines. Dr. Reddy, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Vin. I'm uh, Sethu Reddy, uh, Senior Associate Dean for Research here at Central Michigan University College of Medicine with past stops at Cleveland Clinic, Cleveland and Joslin Diabetes Center in Boston. And certainly it was a, a pleasure and honor to be uh, one of the authors for this uh, updated guideline. Well, thank you. So maybe we can start about the guideline itself. I mean, I found it very comprehensive. There are 175 statements in this guideline and anything, uh, any question you have about diabetes is addressed in the guideline. So maybe I can ask Dr. Sampson first, what is your recommendation on how someone out there who's uh, taking care of people with diabetes, how they should approach the guideline? How should it be used? What's your recommendation? Because it's a very large document. It can be very overwhelming sometimes when you first look at it. I agree. So I think for me, the most important thing with the guideline is that each section started with a question. So I think for someone reading the guideline, going straight to the very first table, table one, summary of questions. If you have a question about how should I manage one of my patients who has obesity and diabetes, that question is there. And that question can direct you right to the section that provides the recommendations as well as the evidence-based rationale. That would be my thought on how to approach this very large document would be ask the question of yourself. What are you looking for? and then look for the question in the section that would address that for you. There's also some incredibly valuable tables and figures within the guideline that can be very clinically useful for people who are looking for a quick summary or or answer. I would just say that readers may want to peruse the tables. There's a, you know, a a table of tables and then figures Mm -hmm. and just seeing what's in there in terms of the approach to uh, the different aspects of diabetes care. Great. Dr. Reddy, do you have any other suggestions on how someone 
approach the guidelines? And I've said this before that our ACE guidelines are really written by clinical experts or clinicians uh, for clinicians. And so it's really important that the questions that Dr. Samson mentioned uh, really spend a lot of time phrasing the questions properly so they'd be clinically relevant. And I'd recommend uh, any practitioner to read the guidelines as in a just-in-time kind of guideline. So if they have a particular case in the clinic that day or they foresee a case coming up in the afternoon, then they can actually go to that particular section. Mm-hmm. And I don't recommend reading the guidelines from beginning to end. It's, uh, I think, an 80-page document with over close to 2,000 references. So it's not meant for uh, leisurely reading. But uh, utilitarian, obviously, uh, a patient-oriented scenarios would be perfect. Those are great tips. Uh, I actually just used the guideline recently. I had questions about pre-diabetes, and there were some good statements in there and reaffirmed what I was doing. And also uh, saw there was a section on just diagnosis of diabetes, and I quickly was able to go to those sections and and just uh, reaffirm what I was already practicing. And I can't wait to use the rest of the sections. I see that there's uh, treatment and different monitoring sections. So yeah, I think those are great ideas on how readers should uh, approach these guidelines. I guess over time, what I've noticed in the past is, is if you keep on using the guideline, you eventually become very savvy with navigating such a big document. So my next question was, tell me about the process of putting these guidelines together. I mean, these were very long awaited. I, I know that these took many meetings. There's a very large list of authors. Tell us a little bit about the behind the scenes process of how this guideline came to be. Uh, maybe Dr. Sampson, you want to start first? Sure. So, you know, Dr. Reddy was the section chief on this guideline. It was divided into four sections. The first about screening, diagnosis, and your glucose targets and how to monitor patients. Uh, The second on complications and comorbidities. Third on management. And then fourth was education and other topics. And I had the honor of working under Dr. Reddy in that last section, which we can talk about later because it's a really interesting potpourri. But with the process, you know, we we have a methodologist who works so closely with us and is invaluable, Carla Stack. And what she did was for each of those questions that were posed, put together the search terms to pull out of the literature, a very comprehensive group of abstracts, which of course the abstract is about the publication and then graded the level of evidence for those. And each of us were divided into kind of partnerships. So I had a partner that in different sections, for example, I partnered with Dr. Reddy on diabetes education, and he and I would read through all of those provided abstracts and then decide whether or not that the level of evidence provided by those documents were valuable. And we could both agree, we had to both agree that they should be included as evidence for the guideline. And so that process itself of culling the literature and making sure that it was complete was, was months. It was probably the largest part of this. And then taking that and honing it down to answer the question and choose the exactly the right evidence and the grade was the next step. So this is why these processes take two years yeah. <laughs> to complete. Well, I don't know, Seth, do if you have anything to add? Yeah, that's a, that's a nice segue to my next question about the grading. Maybe Dr. Reddy could answer that. I mean, when I was reading the guideline, I was happy to see that there was plenty of evidence to make statements and the grades on many of the guidelines were A. 
And I was really pleased to see that. Dr. Reddy, could you comment on the grading and how that was determined? And what does that really mean for practitioners out there? I think the grading, of course, is dependent on our methodological expert as well as the subject matter experts on the committee. And what I've noticed is the trend over the last uh, maybe five to 10 years, the use of systematic analysis being much more relevant. And uh, as you can imagine, there may be, you know, tens of articles on a particular theme. And uh, a systematic analysis uh, actually is very helpful at collating that uh, breadth of information and uh, deciding whether it's statistically significant, clinically significant uh, or not. So for a lot of the recommendations, we were able to actually have supporting uh, evidence. The other point uh, Dr. Sampson mentioned, we had the question, and then we have to answer the question, and then from that, make a recommendation. So each sentence in the answer to the question had to have evidence base. So you cannot just make a conversational point or a nicely uh, structured personal opinion in the document. Every sentence basically had to be referenced. It's very rigorous. And uh, I think there are some situations where there isn't enough evidence, but there may be a, a clinical consensus or a clinical tradition and uh, was labeled uh, in such a way. But hopefully as guidelines evolve, I think you'll see a majority or almost all of the recommendations to be uh, you know, evidence-based. Just to give you a heads up in the near future, the ACE has joined the organization to use the GRADE methodology, G-R-A-D-E, and this will be the latest well-accepted format or platform to be able to assess the literature and evidence. So we're hoping to be on par with any other leading national organization when it comes to developing guidelines. Thank you so much for clarifying that. I mean, I think that's really good to to have a very transparent process and provide all the evidence for our readers to uh, to see what what is the strength of the evidence. I think that's so important. So, I think our readers really want to know what is new. I think that people are very aware of the past ACE guidelines, and they've been so helpful in the care of people with diabetes, especially with the apps and the online publication of the guidelines. But what is new in the 2022 guideline? Dr. Samson, could you point out some of the highlights of the guidelines that you think is new from the previous one? Sure. I mean, I think there's two ways to look at it. What is a very new content, and then also what is new about the way that we have approached diabetes in this guideline. So in terms of content, our section, the fourth section that I worked with uh, Dr. Reddy on started to really think about what are the questions clinicians want to answer that maybe weren't there before. So there's a, a whole new section on the impact of diabetes and hyperglycemia on fertility and, and how you might think about working with the patient and making sure you optimize the reproductive health in, in you know, in spite of the fact that they have diabetes. There's also some discussion of secondary diabetes, which may have a little bit of a different flavor than type two. So you're thinking about post-transplant diabetes, diabetes, secondary to cystic fibrosis, other secondary diabetes, and how do you approach those? I think we also tried to think a little bit about social determinants of health. You know, this is something we're starting to really incorporate more and more in our practices. How does that impact diabetes outcomes and and is there any way that we can start to think about how to 
improve those. Not that we have great evidence right now, but you know, it's kind of hypothesis generating or research generating discussion about those social determinants of health. We also talked about supplements that wasn't in there before, you know, supplements are things that the patients are reading about on the internet and maybe going to alternative health clinics. And so we had to really look at the literature in terms of medical evidence for any risks or benefits of supplements for patients with diabetes. So, so those are some of the new sections. And I think others have been really shored up and updated and modified as well. Thank you. I, I was actually in CF clinic yesterday and uh, I noticed that there was a secondary diabetes section. So I think that is very important. So many different kinds of other diabetes besides type one and two. And I was, I was happy to see that. Dr. Reddy, what strikes you as the most different from the last guideline. But if it's not too late, I really want to recognize uh, uh, Dr. Larry Blonde from Austria Clinic and Dr. Guillermo Perez, who were the co-chairs of this task force, and Dr. Janet McGill and I were uh, section leaders of the four sections. You know, we had one section on screening, diagnosis, and uh, glycemic targets and monitoring, a second section on comorbidities and complications, and third on management. And Dr. Sampson covered the uh, fourth uh, uh, topic there. For me, the highlight really was the importance of the uh, role of CGM going forward in diabetes management. I think ACE certainly supports that anyone on insulin therapy or hypoglycemic therapy should be individually assessed for the utility of CGM. And I think as CGM becomes more accessible and affordable, I think this will become a standard uh, going forward. The other is the, in terms of uh, glycemic management, we have uh, more agents that uh, have been uh, approved for diabetes. In fact, we were able to insert the trisapatide, which is the dual GLP-1 receptor agonist, the IP agonist in our guideline. Metformin is still considered uh, first line because of uh, its accessibility, the price, and uh, over, what, 70 years of experience now clinically. But in the back of our minds, we did feel that uh, as the newer agents, GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors, as they come off patent and become uh, generic, I think you'll start to see movement towards using those as the first line. And But metformin first line, and obviously if there's intolerability and other scenarios like uh, renal impairment, et cetera, obviously other choices need to be used. One of the biggest changes for certainly therapeutic decision-making is the coexistence of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or vascular disease. And we really have had phenomenal clinical trials in the last five to seven years, which were originally formulated to address the safety concerns, CV safety of diabetic uh, therapeutic agents. And lo and behold, we actually were able to see that they've had a positive impact in terms of reducing cardiovascular events. So we actually have a very nice algorithm in the table summary of our evidence in that those that have established ASCVD or high risk, certainly GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors may be used in that population. Those that have heart failure, which as you know, is frequently seen comorbidity of type 2 diabetes. And whether it's preserved ejection fraction or reduced ejection fraction, SGLT2 inhibitors seem to be playing a role in improving outcomes and uh, reducing mortality. What's interesting there is that these agents appear to be effective in even in patients without diabetes and uh, they have heart failure. 
Uh, the third category would be uh, those that are had a cerebrovascular event or at high risk of cerebrovascular disease that hear uh, both uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists or uh, uh, TZD. And the only one available in the U.S. currently is pyoglitazone may be useful in that particular scenario. And then for uh, diabetic kidney disease prevention, uh, obviously we continue to concur with use of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers as first line. But in terms of glucose lowering, SGLT2 inhibitors may actually be renally protective. And I think these agents also may rise to the level in our minds, similar to ACE inhibitors, I think, going forward. And recently, finerenone, which is a non-steroidal aldosterone blocker, has been approved by the FDA at uh, protecting the kidneys in those with diabetes as well. I would say those are the uh, highlights for me. For insulin management, we've given some uh, nice philosophical approaches on using insulin but we did not want to prescribe to such a granular detail that I think that puts the physician or clinician sometimes in a difficult situation. These are guidelines, and uh, the practitioner is meant to use their therapies uh, and individualize the therapies to the best effect uh, in each patient. I think it's really an amazing time, especially over the past 10 to 15 years, to see all these different therapeutic agents that are coming out and we could uh, fine tune them to the patient. We've come a long way with just metformin and regular insulin and NPH and saphonyureas. And it's a really exciting time. And, and as you mentioned, Dr. Reddy, that the technology is really a rev- also revolutionizing the field. So thank you and the authors for putting this together for us. Uh, I want to go back to Dr. Sampson. I just looked at the summary of tables and figures, and I think that is a great suggestion to just start there and looking at the titles, because I think that's a really, uh, just looking at the titles really tells you where to focus on if, if you have a specific question. Uh, I guess the question is, I hear that there's an algorithm coming out. So I hear that should be out, I think, at the ACE annual meeting, I believe. Maybe you can tell the audience what the algorithm is about and what is that going to add to the guideline? Well, so ACE has produced the approach to comprehensive diabetes care algorithm for many years now. In fact, uh, you can go all the way back to 2009 and see an original, much abbreviated version that Mm -hmm. was, I think, designed in response to an expanding array of diabetes medicines at the time. And at that time, it was DPP-4 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists. Then, you know, jumping ahead to 2014, Dr. Alan Garber and and many of our, you know, leaders of ACE put together a much broader algorithm, which dealt with not only how do you approach glycemic control, but how do you treat the complications of diabetes? How do you treat the the comorbidities, which can include hypertension Mm -hmm. and lipids to improve cardiovascular health? And every year that algorithm received an update until 2020. We have an opportunity in this year because of the new guideline to really update that algorithm and make sure it aligns with the guideline, but provides a very succinct clinical, almost pictorial approach to managing patients that can be for quick reference within the clinic. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the goal will be. And yes, we are really hoping to unveil that at the ACE annual meeting. 
I can't wait because I, I remember seeing printouts of the past algorithms in fellows' offices, and uh, and I found it uh, so helpful. I think there was even an app for some of these older algorithms you can quickly look at. Mm-hmm. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the algorithm. Dr. Reddy, any comments on the algorithm? I, mean, I think they've been so helpful, like in the clinic, right on the fly. And you need to know an answer really quickly. Well, I think the algorithm, when it was first developed back in late 90s, this is before EMR was getting really incorporated, et cetera. So it was a fantastic tool that could be put in a, you know, your white coat in your clinic and a good reference. It really is, I think, a very practical uh, summary of the highlights from the guidelines, which is more of a resource document, reference document. And uh, the utility of the diabetes guidelines will actually in I think increase exponentially depending on how the uh, the algorithms are uh, developed. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they'll be very practical and uh, clinician oriented. So look for uh, the algorithm hopefully early next year, and then uh, uh, the online updates as we go forward. That's a great um, uh, leading question for Dr. Sampson. I was wondering, what is the dissemination plan for these guidelines? I mean, they've just been published in endocrine practice, and it's freely available. Everyone can download it. And we've already had thousands of downloads, even in the first month. So what are the plans over the next few months to uh, really get this document out there? We certainly have been making sure that there are key presentations at conferences. For example, Dr. Reddy just presented at the Middle East North Africa conference in Dubai last weekend and really touched on the high points of the guideline. Of course, there will be discussions moving forward at any of our regional meetings, and we're also happy to to present at any of the state meetings that occur in the endocrine realm or even in primary care. So we're happy to to take on any invites. And I think just moving forward, also just disseminating through social media, making people aware that there is a new guideline and and what the contents are about. And of course, here we are doing this podcast with you. So so that should help too. And we're the number one podcast in endocrine matters. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Dr. Reddy, I know you've been traveling. How has it been received so far? You've had a chance to talk to some ACE members and even some around the world. What do they think? I think they're very pleased and uh, happy. They see this as a practical statement, as I said, uh, written by clinicians, uh, for clinicians, I think, important. I think this is one of the ways that we can uh, prove uh, ACE leadership for clinical endocrinology. I mean, what better way than to not just teach others, but teach ourselves that we're aspiring to a higher standard of care. So I think that's a good message. And as you know, we're trying to involve our extended members of our endocrine care team, nurse practitioners, PAs, pharmacists as well. And we hope that in the next iterations, we'll have many of those colleagues as well involved in the dissemination of the guidelines. It's not going to be just doctors talking to doctors, but uh, perhaps uh, mm-hmm. nurse practitioners and PAs that can uh, literally translate from the guideline language to practical language for the community uh, healthcare practitioner. And so I think there's a lot of good feedback so far, but I know that uh, no matter how good we are today, we can always get better. So any suggestions that uh, your listeners have, certainly free to uh, uh, send them onward and uh, uh, 
as uh, my motto is never turn down a good idea even if it's from somebody else so we look forward to that we'll make sure we give you all the feedback from the listeners okay in the next few minutes maybe i could just end with both of your take home messages if there's one thing that our listener can take home today from these guidelines what would it be so we can start with dr samson and then dr reddy Right now, I'm going to steal one of Dr. Reddy's lines because I liked it so much. And and that is that what we didn't touch on in this interview is that the underpinning for all successful treatment for prediabetes and diabetes is going to be a management of weight and overweight and obesity and lifestyle. And so that makes sense to me. And this document has some really detailed Mm -hmm. advice about diets, about the use of pharmacotherapies for weight loss about incorporation of bariatric procedures as well. So I think it's really important to remember that we're not just treating the glucose once patients have diabetes, we're trying to prevent it or also maybe provide better control through weight loss. And so that's really important in this document. There's a substantial section dedicated to that. I think that's important to address that. Thank you for that. And Dr. Reddy, any final last minute thoughts? I want to... I just echo Dr. Samson's comment that weight management is a recurring theme throughout the guideline. And whether it's prediabetes, the associated comorbidities, complications of diabetes, you know, even retinopathy, neuropathy, for example, weight management is a key underpinning to our management. And uh, in terms of leaving the audience with any final statement, you know, this is meant to be incorporated over a lifetime. And in terms of my assessment of patients in the clinic, I always divide my assessment into assessing control and then the complications in each patient. And for each of those particular themes, I think the guidelines offers uh, up-to-date latest uh, uh, recommendations that would help me. And over the course of a year, I may meet with all of the recommendations, but certainly it's not meant that uh, all 170 recommendations need to be incorporated or implemented for each clinical visit. So just uh, say relax and uh, take your time. And as you said earlier at the beginning, then uh, this is a lifelong process and not meant to overnight change one's practice immediately. Well, thank you both so much for uh, joining today and talking to our audience. I I was very worried when I uh, took on this assignment to a podcast with you because it's such a large, overwhelming document when you don't really know what it's about. But having talked to you and listened to your comments, I think I feel much better. And I know how to use the document much better. And I'm, I'm happy to hear there'll be more opportunities to review the document over the next few months. And there'll be more uh, ACE products to help support the document. So thank you both for your work. And all, as you mentioned, Dr. Reddy, all the other authors who put all their time into the document and all the ACE staff that put this together. I'm sure there's a countless of number of people behind the scenes, but I really think this is going to be so helpful for the endocrine com- uh, care team around the world. So thank you both. Thank you for having us, Ben. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.